Hello, and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you very much for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com, as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out the podcast on Google, Apple, Spotify, and plenty of other uh, podcast platforms. And But mainly, you can also check out the YouTube channel, where I also do some quick reviews. You'll also see interviews with filmmakers and... Uh, you can, as well as uh, any live streams that I do on Twitch, will go up on there as well. And uh, that's just Sonic Cinema Podcast on YouTube. You can also check me out at www.patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you'll get exclusive uh, access to uh, reviews for older movies, uh, deep dives into films and film series that I tend to do. And uh, more, especially as film festivals and the Oscars come up in 2022, that's something you can look at, look forward to at www.patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. So <clears throat> it's interesting because in, in 2001, we got two very different uh, fantasy franchises that started, and both of them in their own ways were big risks. I I would argue that none was riskier than Peter Jackson's doing the an adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, and uh, that's the one we're going to be discussing today as the 20th anniversary of Fellowship of the Ring comes up. Join me to talk about these movies are a friend of mine from high school, uh, Eric Sanson, and a friend of mine that I met through my work, uh, Jeff Darden. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you yeah, good for to be here. having me. Uh, so while, so before, since neither of you have been on the podcast yet, uh, I want to uh, give a, give people a brief um, sort of introduction to you guys in terms of how you came to The Lord of the Rings as a book and uh, sort of, sort of any histories that you have with the uh, the series in general. And uh, let's let's go ahead and start with uh, Eric. So I came to know the books uh, after I found out that the Lord of the Rings was being adapted into a movie, and ended up picking up the first book. And I figured, well, I'll read the first book and go see the first movie. And one of the things I did when reading the first book was I thought, well, go check out the website too. I'll get into that a little bit more later on, but uh, <clears throat> ended up reading the book, fell in love with that book, picked up the next two, read the next two, and thought, well, I'll read Dissimilarian as well, since that directly ties into the events of the Lord of the Rings. And ended up really kind of falling in love with both the way it was written uh, the complexity and just the the detail that went into creating this this world, uh, the languages that were used in the in the books, uh, which by the way, Token did develop those on his own. Uh, but it really just it made me fall in love with this this fictional world that just was now being developed into a movie since we had the technology to to do them. So that's uh, that's where I ended up falling in love with with that particular world. Okay, Jeff. What about you? 
Uh, kind of similar. I, um, I I had heard of the Lord of the Rings. I'd, I'd um, seen the Hobbit, you know, cartoon when I was a kid. But um, I didn't really, I wasn't a huge fan until I saw, you know, that first trailer. Mm-hmm. And I, I, fan, the fantasy genre growing up, you know, in the 80s and stuff, it was my favorite, you know. And so <laughs> I read all the, all the other fantasy books you can think of, just not Lord of the Rings for whatever reason. I just skipped it. I don't know. Um, but as soon as I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, my God, what is this? I, I have to know everything about it. I started you know, of course, I grabbed the book, started reading the book, delve into all the other, you know, Tolkien, Christopher Tolkien and, and Jared Tolkien's Silmarillion, Morgoth's Ring, Unfinished Tales, all everything I could get my hands on <laughs> leading up to the, this movie because it just looked so amazing. I didn't, and, and I pretty much went into it knowing nothing. So by the time the movie came out, I was I was I was ready and, you know, I was a full, a full fledged fan already. And of course, I loved him. Loved all the movies. It's uh, to this day my favorite, my favorite movies of mm. all time. Yeah, it's interesting. I I wasn't quite sure. Um, though both of those are kind of along the lines of sort of how I came to uh, Lord of the Rings as well, because of the fact that I had not read the books before. I think I like like Jeff. I think I had seen The Hobbit uh, before cartoon, but. It wasn't until that first trailer that, yeah, I, I was I was really excited, and I but I had heard of Peter Jackson, and by this point I was kind of familiar. I was kind of paying attention to things online and uh, reading about news on movies and stuff like that. But I knew Peter Jackson from uh, the Frighteners as well as uh, Heavenly Creatures. And so that got me interested. And then as the more and more trailers came out, and naturally by this point, I'm full-fledged into in, in love with movies. And I bought the all three-in-one, uh, the single edition of Lord of the Rings, uh, the book. And I started to read it before the first movie came out. And I think I got like 50 pages in, and it was just it wasn't holding my attention. It was, it was like, I, this is such a, this is such a tough read. I just, I'm not sure if I can get through it. But once I saw Fellowship, um, it was funny. I, after that, having that point of reference in the way that Peter Jackson tells that story, it, it really helped me get motivated enough to continue reading the books and, so by the time Two Towers came out, I not only finished reading Fellowship, I'd also read Two Towers. And then once Two Towers came out, I basically read The Return of the King almost immediately and then waited the long year before it came out. And, like, you know, I, I absolutely fell in love with these movies. And it was it was such a remarkable achievement what Peter Jackson and his crew did. And it's it's one of those things that <clears throat> it it really kind of it, it in addition to feeling like a milestone not just in the audacity of the fact that they were able to make all three movies at the same time essentially and to make this storyline accessible for people, I think it really it it's really a benchmark moment in 
terms of blockbuster filmmaking because of the fact that it points the direction for the way franchises were made from that point on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is a testament to Peter Jackson's ability to make those three movies at the same time that really ended up living on in cinema. Uh, if you look at the uh, the On Stranger Tides uh, movie, uh, some of the Pirates of the Caribbeans, they ended up doing more than one movie filmed at the time, mm -hmm. which took place, of course, after Lord of the Rings had done their filming. Uh, <clears throat> but something, I'm glad you brought that up, something that I was able, thank God, to talk to some of the cast members about was the filming of doing three movies at the same time. And one kind of thread that a lot of the cast members had uh, in common, uh, including Sean Astin, was the, the, the trips between home and filming. Mm -hmm. It's a 17-hour-plus flight one way, multiple stops, you know, a couple different planes to get home. A lot of times they were only able to fly home on the weekends or when they weren't filming, which sometimes was only a day or a couple of days, and then they had to fly back. So, uh, and I know that the reshoots they did after the principal filming was done was, that was just as, if you will, just as tedious and, and, and sort of, uh, hard to do is the first round of filming. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think the fact that they were able to do all three movies at the same time and do so successfully and create this cohesive storyline that made it easy for people watching the movies to follow what was going on uh, really was a, a very large testament to, to the abilities of the people making the films. Yeah, and I, I think I think a, a lot of credit uh, is, uh, should be given to New Line for taking that monumental risk because no other studio had done it. And I don't, I don't know that the Matrix, you know, or, you know, Warner Brothers or Pirates would have even attempted it if, you know, Lord, Lord of the Rings wasn't as successful. And of course, those two franchises weren't nearly as successful in their <laughs> attempt no. at making the, the two sequels. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, and I know that like, for for a lot of the cast members, they they ended up getting apartments in, in New Zealand and stuff. And I think Sean Astin's family didn't they didn't they live with him for a portion of that shooting? But I may be wrong. Yeah, I think that oh. I I think that's right on that. Um, and uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I I think the the thing that made it in you're you're right. A lot of the credit does go New Line. And it's funny when you consider where New Line was at this time. Like they were, they were kind of a mini major at the time. I mean, mm -hmm. they were, they were, they were part of the Warner Brothers family. I think by this point, I think they were under the same uh, corporate structure, but they were still kind of an independent studio mm -hmm. from Warner Brothers. But they, like you said, I mean, they were basically best known at the time for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies and the Nightmare on Elm Street and genre films. And yeah. the fact that they saw the vision of what Peter Jackson wanted to do and when Miramax ended up putting in turnaround, thankfully, 
when they couldn't get on the ground off the ground for two movies i the fact that new line was able to say look this is well this is three books right that so <laughs> let's just make it three movies i uh, it, it's a tremendous amount of credit and it's you know peter jackson at this point like he he his star was kind of on the rise as a filmmaker. He was a horror filmmaker to start out in horror in the 80s with Bad Taste and you had Meet the Feebles and then he had Dead Alive and then he made Heavenly Creatures which was an Oscar-nominated film. It's a brilliant film if you haven't had a chance to see it. And then he did The Frighteners for Universal and, you know, even though it wasn't a successful movie, you could kind of see the way he was working with um, visual effects and the modern CG, he could pull, you could kind of see where some of those ideas, some of those skills would come in handy for Lord of the Rings. And then he was originally supposed to do King Kong before Lord of the Rings until Mighty Joe Young failed. And then it's like, okay, I've got, we, we, we've got to go to Lord of the Rings first. And uh, it, it's just a, yeah, New Line, it owes a, it's a lot of credit. I, I think part of the reason why this one was so successful um, versus, like, The Matrix and Pirates of the Caribbean is the fact that it's like, you have the text right there. Mm -hmm. The biggest risk was not only just doing the three movies back-to-back-to-back, -to -back -to -back, but the fact that this was fantasy at a time where fantasy filmmaking was just not really successful in any way. And it kind of, I mean, you had occasional movies that were successful like Conan the Barbarian, but in Willow to a certain extent. But then the year before, New Line put out Dungeons and Dragons, which, you know, everybody agrees is terrible. So the fact that this and the fact that this and Harry Potter came out the same year, it's, that's why Harry Potter's also a risky movie, but it's also family-friendly. You can also see where the appeal would come. Plus, at the time, the books were the biggest thing imaginable, and that was not the yeah. case with Tolkien. No, and I think I agree with you completely with Neil Line basically writing Peter Jackson a blank check and telling him, you know, do what you have to do, make the three movies, and we'll see where this goes. And I'm also glad that the special effects that they visualized for the movie at the time were available. Um, yes, what works had to do a little bit of creative uh, invention to, to get things to work for him, but um, I think in, in conjunction with that, the storyline that was already established by Token, it worked out well. Yeah, I mean, and uh, like the Weta Workshop, the uh, Weta Digital, I mean, it started out, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in like Richard Taylor's like, house with like six computers and some you know like they didn't know what they were doing yeah with, with the frighteners you know and like they they, they kind of had to wing it a little bit and obviously obviously it, it they elevated their game by the time it got to you know post post-production or whatever and they were like <laughs> having to make all these um see you know the balrog you know for for fellowship and everything and uh, I, I was I was just blown away by what they were what what they accomplished. What mm -hmm. they, you know, by the time they got the Shelob and like, you know, that 
you 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 can argue that some of the elephants and stuff that didn't look as crisp, but certain things looked amazing. Yeah. Um, had e- were either of you uh, had had either of you uh, seen any Peter Jackson's films before Lord of the Rings? Yeah, I saw Dead Alive. Of course, I didn't know at the time that I was Peter Jackson. And I had seen Heavenly Creatures. Again, I didn't know it was Peter Jackson. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't know the name Peter Jackson until, or, and I saw Frighteners, so those three. But again, I, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't place the, you know, I, I didn't connect the dots at that time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I'd seen them. And then going into the movie and stuff, I, I did, of course, some research. Like, Who's Peter Jackson? What has he done? Like, oh, okay, he did that. Stuff like that. Um, I had seen Frighteners, but not anything else. And... You know, kind of was left scratching my head, going, "Well, who the hell's Peter Jackson?" You know. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's a and I, Peter Jack, I think Fright, I think um, I can't remember if I had seen Frighteners first or Heavenly Creatures. Um, but I know I saw, I did see both of them. I want to say it was probably Frighteners first. I saw that at the uh, University Theater, Georgia State, and. Uh, I, I just had a blast watching that, and it was it was such a fun movie. I mean, at the time, I mean, I you know Michael J. Fox, you knew him as Marty McFly from Back to the Future and Family Ties, so it's like, yeah, that's 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 interesting. But and then going back and watching Heavenly Creatures after that, and seeing the invention of in the imagination behind that, and seeing the way that he was building fantasy worlds. Um, the fact that, and you know, you you talked about how wet a digital began. I feel like that's kind of the the way every effects house has ever been. Because I mean, you hear the stories about ILM being very similar oh, yeah. in terms of how they built the effects for Star Wars. Yeah, uh, and uh, I remember uh, the Frighteners was one of the first movies I'd ever built. And uh, for those of you out there who don't know, Brian and I both. I've been projectionists <laughs> in, in our day. And yeah, I, and I remember, I, I think I messed up uh, building it. I, I built one of the reels like upside down and backwards or something. Ooh, so, and I, I remember screening the movie and I was like, uh, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I got a crash course on how to fix that. Um, thank God, you know, I, 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 I just thought it looked cool. You know, like, oh, this is like a new Ghostbusters or something. I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch this. You know, thank God I did. You know, I screened it. Mm. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the thing is, so much of what you can't, you know, you can't take away the fact that it's like, if this movie was, I can't imagine this movie being made any other place than New Zealand. And yeah. the fact that Peter Jackson essentially had a country behind him where he could visualize the film and they would allow him this massive undertaking is is a true tribute to New Zealand in general. And just how the fact that they were able he was able to sell them on the ability his ability to make this movie in addition to selling New Line on as well. So I think you kind of had a good point there. There's, at least in my opinion, and I could be wrong, there's no other place in the world that he would have been able to film Lord of the Rings 
without heavy editing to make sure that there were no airplanes in the background, there were no buildings showing in the background, that people weren't driving around with cars, roads, that sort of thing. And I think New Zealand was one of the only countries in the world that could offer the kind of background that it did without heavy editing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you got so many like oh, those wide panning shots, you know, of them like running or whatever, climbing the mountain as a fellowship or run, you know, whether they're running through Rohan or whatever. And you, you didn't get a lot of that in like the Hobbit and you could tell they largely filmed it on a, in a soundstage, you know, yeah. with like CGI and stuff. And, and you could tell a lot of the magic was, was missing from those movies. I loved them. I love the movies, but they're, they don't compare to Lord of the Rings. And I think yeah. that's one of those reasons, you know, yeah, and that's kind of interesting because of the fact that so much of, in addition to the digital effects and the saying of New Zealand, the fact that they built those sets and the fact that they built miniatures. So you had this combination of practical and digital effects to bring this film to life. I mean, that is, you know, and I, I rewatch, in addition to rewatching the Lord of the Rings trilogy for this, I also rewatched The Hobbit and. That is, and as much as I enjoy the Hobbit movies, you can tell that the way that they made the movies is just different. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have the same lived in quality that the Lord of the Rings movies do. Right. And like, 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 um, Hobbiton was like, they built a set, right? And then like waited like a year later to film there to let all the, foliage and plant growth you know kind of take over a little bit mm-hmm. to give it that realism and, I, and they're doing the same thing for the amazon show so i have some i have some high hopes and i have some concerns about that <laughs> that's another thought mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just amazing to me that they have the amount of space they do to work with and i'm glad that they were able to build the sets let them sit there for a year and reasonably mm-hmm. expect that when I went back that they were not just going to be s- still standing, but not heavily vandalized either. So that, that, yeah. that was a plus. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, you know, so we, we both, we, we, Jeff and I both mentioned that we had seen the uh, Hobbit cartoon. Had either of you seen the uh, Ralph Bakshi animated film before, or have you seen it afterwards? I well, have neither seen it before nor after. It's one of the ones I've got to go back and, and, and watch. I, I did, um, of course, you know, d- during that, like when I saw the trailer, during during my time of like catching up, <laughs> you know, to the Lord of the Ring fandom, of course, I, I, re- I ran out and I, I found it and bought it. I, like, I got to watch it. I got to watch it. I, I, I was so hungry <laughs> for anything Lord of the Rings. So, I, I, you know, and I watched it. And, and, you know, of course, you know, if you've ever seen, you know, Wizards or, uh, it was ice and fire or fire and ice, whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, then, then, you know what you're getting into a little bit. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Um, it was, uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, John, uh, John Hart, you know, he played, uh, I know he, he played Ollivander. Oh, John. And, and, uh, yeah. Hurt. Right. Yeah. He played the voice of Aragorn. Um, he did, did really well. Um, there, there's a lot to love there. There mm. is, um, you know, but, and it it, it kind of does like the first it, it does it does like I don't know fellowship and then maybe a quarter or some people say half of like two towers and I guess they were gonna go back mm-hmm. and um, 
do it, you know, finish it up. And I think they did, or another studio did Return of the King, but it was, I didn't see that. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was Rankin Bass who went back and did uh, Return of the King as a cartoon, because it's in the same kind of style as the Hobbit cartoon. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was one of the things about the Bakshi one that kind of frustrated me, because I, I think I first saw it around that time of, uh, Gang, gang excited about the movies is and uh, the fact that it's like it's the first like it basically ends at Helm's Deep, but it's not like the entirety of Two Towers. Obviously, it's like basically the Fellowship and then the uh, Two Towers. But yeah, I mean, you you look at what Bakshi does in his animation, and you can definitely see how it's it's of a piece with something like Wizards, like Fire and Ice for him, even though I think I probably prefer those two more because I, yeah, I feel like the sure. world building is stronger. It's more original in that case. Um, I mean, I, I, I still think, I still think Bakshi did about as well as he could do. And I mean, he, he's a filmmaker who, one of the, one of the things I kind of lamented on a guest appearance of on a, another podcast is, the fact that uh, animation is American animation has been so dominated is this idea that animation is just for kids and just for families, mm -hmm. while we don't really have a strong foundation as the idea of animation for everybody. And I, I think Bakshi, you know, he had his niche after like Fritz the Cat, Lord of the Rings, American Pop, all that stuff. But at the same time, like, he would run into issues because his movies just weren't as successful because they weren't family animated movies. So, right. um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch those animated versions of Tolkien and see how, uh, how much they try to uh, tell those stories versus the live action iterations that we've gotten. I think it's unfortunate too, because I think, the last couple of generations of people born uh, in the in the states were, I think they were unfortunately raised with the idea that once you got to a certain age, cartoons were for children. Mm. You're not about anymore. You know that means that you don't get to watch cartoons. Um, and they were raised with this idea that the only time you really got to watch anything that was animated was if a child was watching it. Mm -hmm. Or it was Disney, and even then, it you know, has certain stigma that you know, if you're over that certain age and and you're watching it, then you must there must be something wrong with you, <laughs> or you know, you only put those on when there were children in, in, in present, uh, that sort of thing. So I think uh, that kind of hindered the uh, success of the animated series or animated movie that. You know, it just wasn't as successful because you had groups of people out there, generations that were thinking, well, it's animated, you know, I, I'm too old for animated. So uh, we'll just leave that for the kids to watch. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, after the Bagshi film uh, kind of failed, like like Jeff said, I mean, Rankin Bass basically went back and redid and did Return of the King, but I mean, they did kind of in the same vein of what we get in the Hobbit animated 
cartoon, which is fine. It's, you know, it's okay for what it is, but I mean, it's not necessarily, it, it, it doesn't, it still doesn't necessarily feel like what that movie should have been. Yeah. And, and there's, I mean, you can't connect it to at all because the elves, the way they look and the, the, the Rankin Bass movies versus the Ralph Bakshi ones, you know, Ralph Bakshi, they basically look like, you know, humans with, you know, pointy ears, but in <laughs> the Rankin Bass one, they, they look like gremlins, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 you can't like watch those as a, as a, as a whole, <laughs> but. Um, yeah. What was it, what was it about um, when you guys were watching the, when you guys were reading the books, when you guys were watching the movies, what was it about the world that Tolkien built and then the world that Peter Jackson visualized that connected with you as, uh, as people taking in this, uh, this, this, uh, these movies and these stories? Um, well, for me, you know, because I, I, you know, I saw the trailer first, right? So that imprinted in my brain as this is the way the world looks. This is how it's supposed to look. These are how the characters are supposed to look. Um, so I, I had no previous, you know, like, I, I guess um, I'm trying to think of an example. It's like when you read any book, right? And, and, and you love that book and then they make a movie and you think, oh, that's not how I envisioned that guy. And that's, you know, that's not how I viewed, that's not the way the castle was supposed to look. You no, know, that kind of thing. So it, it I guess I, I was totally fine with how everything, you know, came about. I know there are some people who, you know, purists who have been reading these books since like the 50s or what, the 60s and and they weren't happy with it. You know, even, even Christopher Tolkien is, is given his, his opinions on, you know, how, how the movies came out. I loved it. I, I mean, so <laughs> no complaints for me in that regard. And I think for me, looking at the trailers, <clears throat> having read the book, you know, I had a preconceived idea of, okay, this is how it's supposed to look. Um, I thought, well, the trailers kind of portray a little bit of what it should look like. And I, you know, thought, well, I'll save any sort of criticism for after I've seen the movie. And that way I can at least have a, a better idea. You know, I went and saw the movie and I think the appeal for me was, the environment, if you will, that they were in at the time uh, would have been similar to the environment that was present in the books. Mm -hmm. You know, wide open spaces, you know, a lot of people lived in villages, towns, hamlets, cities. Um, there weren't many people that lived out in remote areas. You know, you were able to traverse back and forth really without ever coming in contact with anybody. And if you did, it was rare. Uh, so that, that kind of portrayed this idea that it was an open world uh, of sorts and lots of green, lots of, you know, rolling hills, mountains. So it was a very, very de definitely a very intoxicating sort of location or feel for the characters that lived in this world you know, that had been experienced and, you know, perhaps travel. Uh, but uh, it definitely gave an idea that, you know, 
what was happening was much smaller than the world that they were in, even though it was to them a very big deal, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, no, and, and, and the fact is, one of the things that uh, I know for me personally, I mean, I like I said, I had read like 50 pages of the book, so you know, I didn't necessarily have much of an idea of like what I was going to get from the movie. But um, I know once, by the time uh, Gandalf arrives at Bag End and that scene with he and Frodo uh, ends, like I was completely on board. I just loved what we were seeing of Hobbiton, of the Shire, the music by Howard Shore. Just, it, it's one of, like I, I've said a couple of times in the past week, I, I think like Howard, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, but I think Howard Shore wrote the best score for any trilogy we've ever seen. And I agree. you get from a thematic level, you get from an emotional level, you get consistency in it, you get you hear the themes, you just understand what they're there for, and they're completely memorable. And, um, you know, it's funny because of the fact that at the time, Howard Shore was best known for his collaborations with Cronenberg, for his collaborations with Jonathan Demme doing horror and drama. And uh, you didn't necessarily expect something like that out of him. And he did as good of a job scoring that as John Williams has of anything. But I, yeah, by the time, I, and it's weird because that was, that was a moment in time for me that to a certain extent I was ready for something like that because at, I was, it was in 2000 that I lost my grandfather and that was hard for me and that was hard for me to get past. And I, I made it through my last year of college and then the next few months was I, I, really started watching movies by the time I, I was watching movies on a regular basis but at the time I wasn't really in love with many of them that I was watching and I think one of the things that's so that so captivated me about Lord of the Rings was from this almost from the second it started the storytelling just enraptured me like I didn't have to make any excuses for oh well it's like it you know, it takes a little bit of time to get going, but once it does, it it I'm completely on board. It was like, or oh, the the storytelling's a bit choppy, and that wasn't really the case with Fellowship of the Ring. It was like once you have that, you get that introduction of the history of the Ring and the history of Middle Earth, and then you get into the story of the Shire, and. I was just completely on board from minute one, and the way that the storytelling uh, unfolded just—it it was riveting to me. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I—it's I, I, one of those like I'll always remember that moment, that whole scene when you know Frodo jumps on uh, Gandalf's cart, and they're and they're riding through you know, back in with that music, that, that score playing. That's like one of those, like, I'll always remember that moment when I first saw it. Cause I, I, I was just like completely in all, I was like, Oh wow, this is a thousand times better than I could have ever expected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, already I was like, this is amazing. Like, you know, 
It was, yeah, definitely kept my attention. <clears throat> Didn't really make make me have to think or fill in the gaps or wonder, hey, you know, we've skipped some parts. I wonder what, what happened. Uh, very easy to follow, uh, very easy to, to, you know, become involved with or, you know, forget your surroundings so that you can immerse yourself in the film. Uh, it didn't leave a lot to the imagination, uh, even though it was as immersive as it was. And it just managed to keep my attention the entire time while the film was going, which is not something I can say that a lot of films do. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times I'm, I'm left kind of twirling my thumbs going, okay, come on, let's get to the point, you know, when, when is this going to start becoming um, something that I'll be able to pay attention to? I'm getting bored, you know. I didn't find myself thinking that during this this film in particular. Uh, uh, I wasn't left, you know, twirling my thumbs. It was very entertaining, uh, very, very good to follow. So it was uh, definitely memorable. What was the... I? I, and I think that is especially, and I think that's that's especially important when you're talking about a three-hour movie. Because I mean, when you have when you have a three-hour movie, or you have basically a movie over two and a half hours, you have an expectation that you're going to get a lot of information, and you also kind of have to, to a certain extent, the back of your mind, even if you're not necessarily thinking about, it, you feel like the film has to earn it to a certain extent to earn that runtime to earn that much of attention because of the fact that that's i mean you know most movies at the time were not around that time especially blockbusters most of them were around between two and two and a half hours if you push two and over two and a half hours you were really pushing trying the patience of the audience and uh the fact that you had three the fact that you have three three-hour movies or three three-hour-plus movies in these, um, it's it's a tribute to Tolkien as well as a tribute to Peter Jackson and how he, Fran Walsh, and Philip Aboyans were able to adapt these this story to make it accessible but also keep it interesting while staying true to the ideas that Tolkien uh, wrote about in his initial book. And that was something I remember that the uh, production companies had brought to Peter's attention was they were concerned that these three, three and a half hour movies were going to lose the interest of the audience. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the companies that he had gone to prior to New Line Cinema accepting uh, the contract for three movies was they wanted him to create, you know, two movies or a movie. And they wanted it to be like a two hour, two and a half hour movie, which wasn't simply going to work. Uh, but even with New Line Cinema, they had expressed, at least to Peter, that they were concerned because they up until that point, a lot of movies that were over three and a half hours or three hours, they didn't they didn't manage to capture an audience's attention for that long. There were people that were getting bored. 
there were people that were leaving the theaters because they had lost interest in the movie. And I know that they had expressed that to Peter and said, you know, is there any way that we can make them just a little bit shorter so that, you know, we're not uh, presenting these movies in a manner that's losing their attention. And I'm glad that Peter stood his ground and said, you know, look, these movies are going to be as long as they're going to be. Uh, really, I'd like to make them four plus hours each, but I realize that the people aren't going to sit in the theater for five, five and a half hours. Three and a half hours is the best I can do. And we're going to stick to that three and a half hours roughly per movie. And I believe that people are not going to lose interest like you think they're going to. And I'm glad that he did because not only was three and a half hours, I think, kind of the, kind of the perfect amount of time, but uh, people didn't seem to lose the interest that, that the production company thought they were going to lose. Uh, matter of fact, you had people that were coming back and seeing the movies, you know, sometimes as many as 15, 20 times per person. And that they were staying entertained the entire time that the movie was rolling. They weren't leaving to go up to the concession stand. They weren't really taking bathroom breaks. They were staying in their seats and they were enraptured by the movie. Yeah. I, I, I know I definitely, I'll, I'll admit, I, I was trying to think about it cause it's been a while since I've thought about it's well, first of all, it's been a while since I've seen a movie more than like, three or four times in theater, but I'm fairly certain I might, I might have actually seen all three of these at least 10 times in theaters uh, at the time. But I mean, I also didn't have nearly the responsibilities that I have now. So uh, yeah, it was, it was something that I definitely went back to time and time again. I know yeah. that there were times I saw it, you know, I think five or six times, but there are people I talked to that had seen it well over a dozen times. Yeah, I saw Fellowship at least at least eight. Mm-hmm. Um, saw Two Towers about ten, and I saw and I I, I remember I saw Return of the King thirteen times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I mean, at that, and I remember I I, I I thought I was done seeing Fellowship, and then like I, um, me and my buddies, it was, this was like a couple a couple of weeks before, not weeks, maybe a couple of months before it was supposed to be coming on, you know, VHS and DVD, and we saw it. We, we found a dollar theater that was still showing it. We're like, oh, we got to go one more time. <laughs> yeah. It, there was no hesitation. We're like, yeah, let's go. And it was, oh, it was the most destroyed print I've ever seen in my life. It was just mm-hmm. like a grindhouse, rocket yeah. damage, green <laughs> scratches. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a lot. If you've ever seen a print like that, it basically means that, first of all, Print used to be actual film, not digital, which it seems like it's been ages since that's been the case. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you see a print like that, it means it's been through, it's probably been through multiple times of scratching, brain wraps, all that stuff. And that's, it's a lot of different projection stuff that could be talked about. That's part of a completely different conversation. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, and it's funny because of the fact that, you know, the idea of, oh, we're, people aren't going to sit around for like five, five and a half hours. By the time Return of the King came out, they were doing like a trilogy Tuesday event the night before Return of the King opened where it's like, oh, hey, you buy one ticket and you can see all three movies at once. 
back to back to back. Oh, and it's not just the theatrical versions of Fellowship and Two Towers. It's the extended editions that add like 40, 50 minutes to the runtime. Yeah. And I remember that the offerings for those, uh, originally uh, some of the theaters around here were, I, I don't know about the one you worked at, Brian, but I know there were other theaters that they were selling out so quickly that they were having to open multiple houses mm -hmm. uh, to be able to fit the number of people that were buying the tickets because they were going within hours. Oh yeah. Of oh, yeah. them being offered. And I remember that there was one theater in particular that I'd gone to see a different movie at and they were showing the, the, the extended versions. And I remember seeing that they were in 10 houses out of like 14. And I remember talking to the manager and, and, you know, just out of curiosity and that particular theater, I don't remember which one it was, but they had sold so many tickets and there were so many people that were coming to the door and wanting more tickets, you know, wanting to buy tickets that uh, for at least for the weekends, they had to open up multiple houses in order to house all the people that wanted tickets. Yeah. And I think that was shocking to them because you know, they weren't used to something that had been out for a while where they were still selling out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. Those, those days are completely gone. I mean, my, the, the theater I worked at and the theater Jeff worked at for a little bit is in a bit of a different situation because we didn't necessarily get everything. I, the only one of the uh, Lord of the Rings movies we got was two towers. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I remember the mad dash when, um, Return of the King tickets went on sale, and it was just absolutely bedlam. And, like, the Trilogy Tuesday sold out immediately and were probably pawned, and some of them probably, some of those tickets probably ended up on eBay, like we're seeing with Spider-Man tickets. And uh, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, I mean, and you just, it's funny because you just don't see that anymore right now. And, I mean, even even when... Endgame, something like Avengers Endgame came out, like it just wasn't. It you wouldn't see packed houses for months on end, like like you would with something like the Lord of the Rings movies. And it's just such a different landscape right now as far as movie going. Yeah, you know, and in fact, you know, as long as I've worked in theaters, I, I never worked at a theater that had any of the Lord of the Rings movies, because uh, when Fellowship came out, I was at Lennox and Phipps got it. <laughs> and then I went over to the Terror, which is an art house, you know, for yeah. the uh, for Two Towers and, and uh, Return of the King. So I had to see that. I, I had to go to see and, and that, an other theater. I never got to see, you know, a Lord of the Rings movie in the theater that I worked at, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and like, okay, so if, if they had 10, 10 screens going, that, that that's a lot of interlocking, because a theater would only they would only get a certain amount of prints, yeah. like you know, thirty-five millimeter prints. So if you if you added shows, that means you were interlocking. And Brian and I know how much of a headache that is. <laughs> Nowadays, you can just you can just like oh oh I'll I'll just take the hard drive and put it on this server, you oh, know, yeah. over here on the on projector four, you know, and and it's it's easy. Yeah. It's, <laughs> there's nothing to it now. So yeah, there's it's a lot easier now, but back then it it was a nightmare to have 
interlocking down on, you know, two separate houses. But when you're talking about interlocking for five houses, that brings a yeah. whole new nightmare. There. <laughs> so, that, um, but yeah, no, it's, you don't, the thing with the landscape now, uh, yeah, of course you have Marvel that's building this whole cinematic universe, which is great. But at the same time, you don't have that same environment that you had when Lord of the Rings was coming out, where it was all part of the same stories, all part of the same movie. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate because a lot of theaters that are looking for that one movie wonder that's going to be able to do that. But realistically, stories like that really, I think, only come by once in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And if the proper attention is not paid to it, the proper effort is not put in, then you're going to see that hitting the theater is not having the intended effect mm-hmm. or it's bringing those people in. And I hate to say it, but up until Lord of the Rings and ever since then, there have been so many missed opportunities that it makes me wonder, you know, was it budgeting? Was it the actors? You know, mm-hmm. was it the director that just missed the vision? You know, uh, did it? Ju- did they not have the ability to have people excited to come see the movie. And I think it may be another 20 years before we see anything else happen like mm. with War of the Rings. It just... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the planet's aligned a little bit, you know, with War of the Rings. I mean, all those oh. things you said, marketing, actor, you know... And everything you know has to line up to make a movie like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, you know, and that, that's a rare. It's obviously it's a unicorn. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. no, and it's it's funny because of the fact that I mean, at the time you had you had Harry Potter that came out one one month before Lord of the Rings, and on the surface, because of the fact that they're both fantasies, they're both dealing in similar ideas of the world to a certain extent, even though one is more of a fantasy that's kind of rooted in reality in Harry Potter, but Lord of the Rings is just straight up completely new world from and a different world than what we're what we're used to in the modern day. The fact that those two hit and the fact that those two succeeded at the same time and we also have to keep in mind, like, this was at a point where Star Wars was in the middle of the prequel trilogy as well. So mm-hmm. you had you had Star Wars back in, into the fold, but by the but when all three of them had releases the next year, it was Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter that people were more interested in than Star Wars. And I mean you could now, Grant, I mean, that's an entirely different discussion because of the relative quality or lack thereof in the prequel trilogy. But at the same time, I mean, you know, you can, if you look at the numbers for like the Fan Menace versus the Matrix in 1999, clearly the Fan Menace was the bigger hit, but the Matrix was considerably more of the of the moment and it was basically basically what boiled down to i think is audiences wanted something new 
And Lord of the Rings, even though it's based on this 45-year-old, 50-year-old text at the time, it was new. It was something we hadn't seen before. Well, yeah, well, actually, yeah, and you just kind of made a point in a way, like uh, something I never thought about was, you know, to, you know, 1999 to two, well, actually you can go back to Phantom Menace, you know, right around in that whole area from then to about 2001, a, a whole new fandom of geeks were, were, were being introduced to superhero movies, you know, that we have now. I mean, you have the Spider-Man and X-Men movie that came out around that same time. Mm-hmm. And they kind of paved the way for the modern day superhero movie. And then you had Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, you know, and then of course Star Wars was coming back, you know, into the fold. So I think like that whole era really probably spawned like a whole new generation of geeks and fandom, you know? <laughs> so I think it was the right time for it to come out. It, it was right at home. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. It was the right time, the right place, the right story. And it was it cast an overwhelming shadow uh, over all the releases that were in the theater at the time. And you know, sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you definitely look at I mean, if you wanted to look at the original Star Wars, uh, going going off of what Eric said, you know, it it was a great thing because of the fact that, you know, we we got this new exciting world that people just clamored to but at the same time you you think about what hollywood did after star wars and most of what they did was they learned the wrong lessons from star wars in now i mean some people you know were able to build off of what star wars did in terms of successful world building and creating new creating new images for us but at the same time you look, there were a ton of pretenders and there were a ton of movies that were clearly inspired by Star Wars to a fault where they were basically just lesser Star Wars. And you certainly saw that after Lord of the Rings and uh, Harry Potter as well, especially with something like Aragon, which came out a few years later, which was, you know, adapted from a young adult novel but at the same time oh it's very obviously trying to go after this audience and it just didn't work yeah and i I don't think hbo would have pretty let game of thrones had lord of the rings you know been not been successful you know that they knew yeah there was an audience for it Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um one of the things that i've always kind of thought about and uh you know, this was, you know, you know, this was, this was a movie, this came, this was one of the first blockbusters along with Harry Potter that came out post 9-11. And I, I feel, and I've always kind of thought like this and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man that came out the next year were probably two of the movies that really part of the reason they were so successful was I kind of feel like they tapped into a hopefulness and a, and something, a a need for heroism that really audiences kind of needed after 9-11. And, you know, Harry Potter was kind of the same way, but at the same time, I feel like 
you know, you you would read. Re- I remember reading reviews of Fellowship of the Ring, and where they would mention, you know, you know, look through the movie, even though it was clearly made before nine eleven, through a post nine eleven lens in terms of good versus evil, that type of story, and uh, that that's one of the things that's always kind of struck me about. I think the way the uh, the way the movie landed with audiences as well. Yeah, let's say like Sam's speech at the end of Two Towers was probably I don't know if it was written after you know the you know nine eleven. If it wasn't, it was it's an amazing coincidence. But he yeah, that 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 speech basically is you know it's, it, it's a very in, in, inspirational speech. It's, it's meant to you know lift people up and it, and, it, and it hit home I think with a lot of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh... Definitely, I think, was the right sort of speech at the right time. Uh, people were really kind of receptive to the idea that, you know, yeah, things are bad now, but it's going to get better, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I hit home. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, the, as the series progressed, um, I know for me personally, and I, like I said, I'd, re- I'd read Two Towers, uh, when I read Two Towers after I watched Fellowship and caught up with uh, everything in Fellowship of the Ring. And I know one of the things that was kind of... I, I kind of felt like at the time, too... I still loved the movie, but I still felt like it was kind of a disappointment, partially because of the fact that they kept out the scenes with Shelob and uh, that that part of the... Tr- the trip and I was but at the same time you also see very much the foreshadowing of what's to come at the end but I, it feels like with two towers they definitely made more changes to the text especially with the way they portrayed Farmir than they did with mm-hmm. fellowship of the ring and as how did that how did that work for you you two uh, after you watched the movies? Um, well, f- for me, like, uh, okay, yeah, so you, you mentioned Sheila, which is my favorite part of the entire uh, book series. That 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 whole, like, you know, uh, Stairs of Carathungal, Sheila's Lair, and Choices of uh, Samwise Gamgee are my three favorite chapters in literary history because it it does such a good job of foreboding this thing you don't know what it is he didn't have Gollum's little speech at the end of two hours of the movie so you didn't know what you knew that they were heading into something horrific but you didn't know what and I was just like turning the pages like oh my god what is happening you know and I think they the movies that's my one criticism of the movie is they really missed a huge opportunity to end it with Sheila but I understand why they didn't because in the, if you're reading the books after the fellowship breaks, you have it basically is two separate stories going on. You have Sam and Frodo's story, and then you have Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli's story. And they break it up in those books, and they're running parallel to one another, right? So, from a chronological standpoint, the movies did it probably correctly, mm-hmm. right? It's not, uh, not you know, they didn't they didn't follow. They couldn't do that because of that. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. Well, well Sheila's lair, that's 
in the book, I, I think was a, a pretty brilliantly written section, even for the for the movie, Eric, for the book. But I remember that there was a bit of uh, behind the scenes tension when it came to the structure of Shelob's Lair, how they wanted that portrayed, whether they should end the second movie with Shelob's Lair. And I remember that uh, on the website, you know, I'll get into that later, but uh, there was a lot of communications going on that they needed to include more of what was in the books in the movie. And mm -hmm. for one reason or another, I think the reason that was given was they just didn't have the time and the budget to put the full encounter in the movie. Right. So they did what they could in order to make that a reality. Um, but I mean, it's it's a brilliantly written idea and encounter. Um, kind of disappointed they didn't w end with Shelob's Lair, but at the same time, I understand why they didn't. Mm -hmm. It created a strong opening for the third movie, for the third act, I should say. Um, yeah. But, you know... I'm glad that they were able to successfully as well relay the story uh, of both parties simultaneously without having people going, but wait, what, why, what, huh? Why is it that they like jump time here and shorten this time over there? Yeah. What happened? You know, where are we at? What's going on? You know? And that's something that a lot of filmmakers really struggle with is the ability to do that and do it successfully. Mm -hmm. And that time your audience kind of scratching their head going, there's a time gap. What, what the hell? Why are we missing time? Yeah. I mean, I, and I yeah. think, I think, I think for part of it, I, uh, I think for part of it, you definitely feel like you want to, cause the middle act of a trilogy is always difficult. And ha what, what what do you want to end that on what note what emotional note do you want the audience to end to leave the audience with on at that point you know cuz you you think about empire strikes back and it's like well that part of the story is over but they have this other thing that they're going to do now with han but it's still kind of a melancholy note because of everything you've learned in the last 15, 20 minutes of that movie with Darth Vader and Luke with right. Yoda and everything. But with this, I mean, I, I, you know, especially seeing the way that they structured Return of the King, you definitely, I, I do feel like you understand the choice of Shelob going more towards Return of the King because the, because you feel, you still feel like you get a complete story with Frodo and Sam, where they're introduced to Gollum, where you see them going, you see the roadblock of uh, them being Faramir, and I, I think that's one of those things where once you really, once you really think about Two Towers more, you understand that having not only do you feel like there's, you feel like there's more of a sense of accomplishment. And if, if they had put Shelob at the end of that, 
I can see audiences kind of recoiling like, oh my God, what are you doing leaving me like that? Because you have the success of Helm Deep and the and then Sam losing Frodo because of the treachery of Gollum, the way the way that those story arcs were eventually structured is actually made it more success uh successful. And I, I think one of the things that's great when you look at I think the extended edition of Two Towers is probably the best one in that it elevates an already great film because it adds real meat to the bones of both of the stories beyond what we got in the theatrical version. Yeah. And I mean, and also from, from a cinematic point of view, um, I, I think overall the decision was right to, to put Sheila into uh, Return of the King because there really wasn't a lot for Frodo and Sam to do after that, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, really it's it. Sheila doesn't even show up. I don't think that scene is, even, it's like 45 minutes into the movie, 45 yeah. minutes to an hour into the movie, you know? So it's not, it, not, it doesn't even open with that, but um, you know, like, I mean, yes, they could have drawn out Sam's rescue and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, another thing I don't, I, I, I kind of, criticized the movies about was that um that well and they they could have they could have um explained the time because in the book it it doesn't really sh say but it, to me it seems like they were lost in Shelob's caverns like for hours mm -hmm. i mean hours and in the and in the movie it just seems like a like oh just just a quick little like oh this little cave you know we're gonna get to the other end pretty quick i mean it's pitch black they couldn't see a thing they didn't know they were being stalked by this monster. And that would have, that would have, you know, I guess explained a lot of, you know, given them more to do if, if they would have opened up with it and, and just drawn out that scene for longer and I, made I, it. I think the reason that they didn't draw out a little bit longer was uh, the tone and pacing of the movie itself. <laughs> and I think that they wanted to create a shorter scene so that, impacted the storyline a little bit more mm -hmm. uh and it just i agree with you i think that it would have been a little bit better if they had you know drawn it out perhaps had it where it was near pitch black uh on the on the screen you know to in show people that hey by the way they really can't see where they're going mm -hmm. uh, but i remember that the big thing that a lot of people were upset with wasn't necessarily the encounter with shelob itself it was the idea that Shelob didn't give them the didn't talk to them didn't give them the uh, uh opportunity to escape unharmed and then decide later oh well never mind i'm gonna go ahead and hurt him anyway mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and i think that was one thing that was really kind of upsetting to a lot of people was that you know she gives them the opportunity hey if you can if you can beat me at, at this game and you can solve these riddles i'll let you go without hurting you but if you don't well you're not leaving <laughs> and i think that was another part that really kind of upset a lot of people was they were expecting that to be in the movie but i think too dear jackson probably thought well you know how are we going to have this spider in the movie and justify it being able to talk yeah we, you know, we really can't. So 
uh, people are going to kind of look at that and go, well, yeah, it's a giant spider, but talking, I mean, come on. <laughs> then it would have been, uh, that, that would have been too similar to Aragog, you know, from Harry Potter right. to, yeah. we got two, right. two, two talking spiders, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Even though they probably would have said, well, they're just copying uh, Harry Potter. And it's like, no, Harry Potter's copying J.R.R. Tolkien. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, considering that, you know, the books are almost a hundred years apart, you know, give me a break. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Well, and it's it, and the way the she loved scene works out in the books, it's one of those things where that's that I think that's a conceit that's kind of easier on the page than it is to make it work on screen. And I think, mm -hmm. especially because of the fact that in the way Gollum is talking about taking them to Shelob at the end of Two Towers, at the beginning of Return of the King if you make it to where even if you even if the audience buys into the idea of Shelob talking and you have this game of riddles between them it still kind of feels like you're you're kind of take if she's given them an opportunity to leave unharmed it sort of takes away the threats of Shelob and what she yeah. could do in derailing their journey and it's that negative impact to the already palpable sort of uh stress if you will and anticipation and having that break is going to interrupt that flow of of energy mm -hmm. that flow of the film and i think ultimately they just decided well it's just easier to remove that part yeah that way we can continue with the film continue building uh, and having this palpable sense of threat, you know, ever present in the background without mm -hmm. having to stop, you know, have this battle of wits and then, oh, okay, well, you're going to attack me anyway. And then trying to rebuild from where you stopped, that's really very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that they just said, you know what? Yeah. People are going to be upset. People are going to be disappointed, but we'll just skip that part and we'll go on and we'll continue carrying this, you know, palpability in the background that, you know, we've already built that we left off with on the second film and we'll just keep going. And, you know, it's going to draw people in a little bit more and make it, um, make it better for them to, to watch the movie and go, but what's going to happen, you know? Yeah. So I'm how, glad how they, guys... the way they didn't. Uh, I was going to ask, uh, how did you guys feel about the the plot device they they developed, where you know, the Lambert's bread and Frodo sending Sam away, you know, to get you know, because that obviously did not happen in the books, and mm -hmm. you know, and at no point did Frodo and Sam even like yeah argue or get in a fight, you know, they, he was always there, he was always going to be there for Frodo. That kind of bugged me a bit, um, and I, but I understand they, they they were trying to get Sam far enough away. To like then become you know be the be the hero you know come in and you know and and that, and that from a cinematic point of view yeah it was exciting it was fine but you know them figuring out the caverns you know getting lost you know but it, it, it in in a book it just seemed seemed like they could have still had that moment Sam could have still had his moment where you know Gollum could have you know they, they get into a big fight and uh, Sam of course beats Gollum's ass in the in, in the book, but like 
Um, uh, it, 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 they could have changed it that way, where where Gollum, you know, knocks Sam out for a brief time, you know, or something. Like that. I don't know. <laughs> it just well, seemed. Again, if, I if think I, that they were. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. I, 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 I was just going to say it, it just bugged me that they, you know, where where was Sam really going to go? <laughs> yeah. He's going to go all the way home, you know. Like, but, yeah. It, it again, it really kind of plays into even though, like you stated, it wasn't in the books. Uh, it didn't happen in the books, not the way that was portrayed. Uh, you know, but I think they were trying to create more friction mm -hmm. between Frodo and Sam, uh, building that excitement, building that tension. And they were using that as kind of a plot point. I think that, you know, Frodo doesn't have his protector near him, so uh, he's more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think it, you know, I, I think it, it's obviously, I think, a more cinematic choice. And you're, you're right, Jeff. It's like, because where is, is Sam really going to go all the way back to Bag End from there after Frodo sends him away? I mean, what, what's going to happen there? I mean, that, that's not really a realistic idea. But I, I think it plays into a couple of ideas because of the fact that it makes Gollum's, it, it kind of makes, you know, sort of in the same way that Wormtongue was sort of this this devil in, um, how come I can't remember the king's name? Oh, my. Sarabon? Yeah. His, his ear in Rohan, Gollum is sort of like the devil in Frodo's ear in, in, those, in that arc with those three. And so I think you have a you have an idea there where it's like you really want to emphasize that Gollum is truly a threat to beyond his obsession with the ring, he's truly a threat to the mission of destroying the ring, but also it makes it more it, it gives it even more of a heroic idea to you have that intercut, you have that one of Sam falling down the stairs and realizing just how much Gollum betrayed him, you know, lied about it. And so, you know, yeah, you don't see him going back up, but then it, it gives you that moment where Sam, when Sam shows up to confront Shelob, it gives it a more, an even more heroic part. I mean, it's basically a cinematic it's 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 one of the things where you have to look at adaptation versus it versus uh just being slavishly you know literal to the text and it's like it's one thing to be literal to the text and be true to the text but you also want to be true to the spirit of the characters and the way that those characters behave are are in that moment and you want to do something cinematic as well. And at that point, it also adds up to the fact that Frodo, to a certain extent, he's putting too much trust in Gollum. And mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing to uh, illustrate as well in that moment. I agree. Yeah. Well, same here. And, you know, it's just that whole misplaced trust part uh, issue. Um, how do, how do we feel about um some of the you know it's like 
I, I think, you know, I, I just watched uh, these movies a few days ago, and I, I think one of the things that really strikes me is the fact is how much of the visual effects continue to hold up. And I know and a big part of it is the way that they went with miniatures as opposed to CG for a lot of the wide shots, a lot of the big uh, establishing shots of places like Roma, Rohan <coughs> of uh, Orthanc and... Uh, Mordor and just everywhere in general, but the 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 fact that we even now looking at the visual looking at the performance capture on Gollum and Andy Circus just did an amazing job with it as he's done continued to do as a motion capture uh actor. Um you you see that and it still holds up very well compared to the visual effects of even, you know, Gollum in uh, The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey, but also compared to something like uh, Caesar and the Planet of the Apes movies and Avatar, you know, you, you still see, you, you still see that Gollum still holds up as a character. And then you have the Ents, which, you know, could have been the most, ridiculous silly effects the idea of talking ta walking and talking trees but they they feel completely organic to the nature of the world that we see and i mean you you mentioned some of the olifants uh, not really you know you you can kind of see the seams there and i mean you can sort of see the the army of the dead is still very you know it's very much cg and you know it's very much what we expect and what we would expect in that after the frighteners but um you know i, I there there's such a detail an attention to detail and the fact that they basically built those visual effects to last and i think that's one of the things that's most impressive about watching those movies now yeah Absolutely. Um, and, you know, like, well, when you're when you're making a CGI and stuff and you're using you, you have a use of shadow and you can you can use your environment to, to sorry, <laughs> get all these amber alerts. Um, you can use that to to to, to, a, to make your characters look better. And the elephants didn't have that. You know, they were under like, you know they were in the daylight. It was, it was very harsh light coming on them. And that's hard to do. It's hard to make you know, a CGI character, you know, look good when in natural daylight and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, like if you ever, it, we've all, I'm, I'm sure we've all watched the um, extended edition and I'm, I, and this part, what stands out to me when like they call it, they, that they examine this like piece of armor and they, Shelly, see this little piece of detail right here? This is not going to show up on camera. We know we're, we know it's not going to show up on camera, but we put it in there anyway. You know, it's that level of detail and attention that makes this movie so great. And I think they probably did that as well with the CGI, which probably added to its, you know, ability to survive the last 20 years and still look great. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, like you said, that even even like Dobby, you know, from Harry Potter, looks pretty, pretty bad, you know? <laughs> I mean, it looks okay, but not yeah. nowhere near as, as good as Gollum. And that's, I, and that's ILM versus Weta Digital that didn't have any real, you know, didn't have nearly the resources that ILM has, you know? Mm. Well, I think you had a very important part was 
uh, anything that was in the Battle of Pelmer Fields, uh, of course, it's going to be showing it up in harsh daylight even before then when you see the uh, Oliphants marching towards the battlefield. Uh, they're being shown in a harsh natural light, which again, any sort of CGI is going to have a tough time uh, showing itself and, and being realistic on being able to hold up years later. But I think the difference with Golem is that he starts out in a dark environment. He stays pretty much in a dark environment the entire time right? and dies in a dark environment. So and it's able to hold up more realistically, look more realistic, and it's going to end up holding that integrity uh, as a visible fictional character that underwent CGI transformation much better over an extended period of time than, say, the Oliphants will, because he was able to blend in a lot better to his surroundings as opposed to what was on the fields of Pelner. Mm -hmm. And just unfortunately is something that I think technologists are still kind of working on to make look more real realistic under sunlight. And I don't think we're quite there with the technology and coding, but I think we're getting much better at it. Mm -hmm. So that's well, just it, my it, opinion. Yeah. It, it's interesting what, what that uh, Wet Weta is, is better at certain things than ILM. Like, Face like human faces, even like Orlando uh, Bloom was only in a few actual scenes in the Hobbit movies. Most of that is CGI, and I can't tell which one's CGI and which one's not. I couldn't tell you, you mm -hmm. know, may, maybe if I if I really examined it. But then you get Luke in the Mandalorian, and I'm like, that's fake. Yeah. You know, just same with Leia, same with uh, Grand Moff Tarkin. You know, uh, it, yeah. it, it, it's like. I can tell it's fake. <laughs> you know, I, I, ILM needs to, needs to go over Weta and uh, take yeah. some notes or something. <laughs> I, I really think that they could use a lot more help because, like you said, uh, with Luke, Leia, and Grand Moff Tarkin, it's very easy to look at it on uh, on even a high-def TV and go, oh, well, that's obviously fake, mm -hmm. even though they're using someone as a stand-in. Uh, you can very much tell that it's just not holding up well, even within months of its release. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what is doing much better work with that and is making it look much more realistic. And with some of their stuff, like you said, I'm left looking at going, you know, I, I'm having a hard time discerning what's real, what's CGI. Yeah. But then again, like Van Helsing, did uh, Weta did that one, and there are some pretty. I don't know if they were rushed, but like there, there were certain scenes in that one that were like, eh. <laughs> you know, not great. So, yeah, and I know that uh, I know that again. I talked to a couple of the cast members of you know, Lord of the Rings. Thankfully, I've had that opportunity before uh, this pandemic hit, and being able to talk with some of them and. A lot of them, they really loved making the first movie because a lot of what you see is physical props. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of actual, like, set building. They were able to interact with physical items in front of them. Uh, the, second, the second chapter in the film, uh, The Two Towers, uh, is when some of the griping starts becoming a little bit more apparent because... 
they're having used more CGI than physical prop work because let's face it, there's no easy way to make an end yeah. and make it work realistic. Being, you know, it's just it's too time consuming, too much animatronics, and let's face it, it's just not going to look the way that you want it to. But a lot of the a lot of the I don't want to say griping, but I think they were more upset and disappointed, if you will, uh, with the third chapter because a lot of what was there was CGI. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those actors, including Sir Ian McKellen, uh, they got to their breaking point because they, you know, were filming scenes alone. Uh, Sir Ian McKellen actually got to the point during the third movie where he wanted to quit because a lot of the stuff he was filming was CGI. There were no other actors on set. Uh, there were uh, other actors that they were having a hard time coping with it because, again, there were a small number of actors on set. A lot of what they were seeing was CGI, blue screen. Um, but I still think they did an admirable, admirable job post-production adding in a lot of the CGI work. And I really have to give the actors credit for not quitting or getting to that point where they just finally said, enough's enough. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. And I really have to give it to the production company, the producers, and also the director uh, and making sure that they were placated enough where they stuck around and finished the, the filming. Mm-hmm. But I'd have to say that the overall, the CGI work that was done on the film has held up quite well, even 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's one of those things where even if you watch like the, all of the bonus features and the appendices and the extended editions, it's like, it it really doesn't you you see so much of the tactile detail of the sets that they made for those that you don't even think about the fact that as the narrative gets bigger as the story gets bigger as the set pieces get bigger there's going to inevitably be more and more of a reliance on CGI even when you have stunts you can't realistically do a like the Battle of the Pelnor Fields realistically with just stunt people and you know all of all of those elements and do it at budget that would be even remotely reasonable. And so it it's yeah. it, it makes it makes a lot of sense that they would, you know, as the as the films go on with more and more CGI elements that it would, it would make sense that would frustrate the cast even more. Right. And even with the battle of Pelmer fields, you're talking about, you know, 16 to 18,000 individual people that would have to show up to film that battle sequence in certain, certain places. And let's just face it, you know, the budgeting for that would be a nightmare, let alone trying to individually coordinate uh, each person. Okay, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to fight your part of the scene. It just turns into a virtual nightmare that just, I mean, it's not feasible. It's not Mm -hmm. something that can be done easily without going, okay, well, you know what? We're going to film significantly less people. 
we'll just fill in the rest with CGI because you know what? It's too much of a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to have to do it. And unfortunately, we're just going to have to deal with it the way that it is. And, and I think the ability for them to do that was just phenomenal. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you really can't tell that, you know, or was it three-fourths of the, the people doing the charge on the horse horses were CGI. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the first three rows that were actual people that showed up for the actual charge on their own horses. And uh, you see the row upon row upon row behind them. But the CGI was so good that you look at it and go, oh, okay, well, you know, more people. Yeah. Uh, I think that that was amazing. Yeah, truly. And, uh, you know, it's like you, you wouldn't necessarily expect, you know, that, that story about Sir Ian McKellen almost being so frustrated that he would, he would walk away from the, the project. It's, it, it, it really is striking because of the fact that you would never notice it when you're listening to him tell Pippin the story of the, you know, the land beyond the, 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 the falls, the, the, the undying lands in, in that amazing scene in uh, Return of the King. You would never, you would never, you could never pick up on something like that. And that, that's just one of those moments that those are the moments that really stick with me most about these movies and really connect with me the most about these movies. I, those type of moments, the, the moment where the hobbits are back at the green dragon at the end of everything. And it's just them singing in silence and you, you understand the weight of that moment. And I, I think that's ultimately why these films work. I mean, you can throw as much great technology as you can a movie like this, it doesn't work without the characters. It doesn't work without those moments. And uh, it's it's something, you know, usually for a podcast like this where we're talking about specific movies, uh, I tend to take notes. I didn't need to take notes. I've seen these movies many times. But mm-hmm. I have my memories of these movies are so profound. And uh, it's it's all of those moments. And uh, what, what are some of your favorite as we as we get ready to wrap up this conversation i'm really glad we were able to have this conversation and really talk about these movies in in a way that i i i think you know it's it's easy to really appreciate and say online oh yeah i i i love these movies so much it's another thing to really dig deep into what about these are so special and uh, what what are some of your favorite moments from these movies, Jeff? Uh, well, God, I'm trying to think because <laughs> I have so many. Um, I, I I love my one of my favorite scenes is when um, they're on uh, I think Weathertop and they're they're camping out and Frodo's asleep and you know the, the hobbits are mm-hmm. making the food or whatever and they're attracting the Nazgul to them and you know. When Aragorn shows up and fights off, I don't know, I think it was like six of the Nazgul or something like that. 
And that moment where he like turns around and sees the one and then Osgood looks at him and he throws a torch in his head. <laughs> I, I love that, that the way he just turns around and looks at him. That's, like, that's probably my single favorite moment in the movie of all, of all the movies. But I love that scene because it, it really, it, 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 it affirms who Aragorn is, what he's capable of, why he's been sent to, you know, protect the hobbits, you know, and, and you know, you, you, you know in that moment, okay, this dude, this dude's for real, <laughs> you know? And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would probably say that's probably my favorite part. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, there, there are some, like, there are at least two or three from, uh, every movie I can probably, uh, point to. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you remember, you, you remember the, you remember in watching a movie like Lord, the movies like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you you remember it. Movies like that sort of take you back to the appeal of some of the great movies. You know, it's like they're think about the think about the original with Star Wars trilogy. You think about like Raiders of the Lost Ark or even that trilogy. You think about E.T. to a certain extent. There's a level of imagination. There's a level of inventiveness and daring in in those movies that really that that really i think connects with uh i i think that you can tell even even movies that basically become established classics over the years like you can you know you you they they will always stick with you because of the fact that they 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 just become part of your they just become part of that lexicon of cinema knowledge of culture that you continue to come back to year in and year out. And I think the the thing about the Lord of the Rings is they, against all risks at the time, it 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 feels less like a risk the more you watch it because of the fact that everything about them ended up so right and everything about them it it just every choice makes sense and uh you know that if i'm gonna just as we uh wrap up i want to give uh you guys a uh thought anything else that you guys want to say about these movies um you know feel free before we wrap things up I think for me, there's two d distinct things that I'd like to cover uh, real quick before we, we go. Um, probably one of my favorite scenes in, in all three movies is when uh, the, <clears throat> you know, the, during the Battle of Pelmer Fields where she rips off her helm and says, I am no man. Uh -huh. That particular scene has stuck with me since, uh, since I saw the, the initial film. Uh, the other thing I want to go over uh, real quick as well, too, uh, one thing that did endear me to the films was that uh, they were having issues kind of interpreting interpreting certain scenes. Uh, Christopher had gone through hundreds of pages worth of notes that his dad had left, and Fran, Philippa, and Peter had been getting with him, and they were kind of having trouble, if you will, 
uh, flushing out certain scenes or interpreting certain scenes and going, you know, what, how is it that J.R.R. Tolkien had actually seen the scene? So one of the things that they did was they created uh, a website for Lord of the Rings, and part of the website was that they would post uh, a scene, and then they would post a certain number of interpretations of how they thought that scene should play out. Uh, people were able to go on to the website and vote for certain interpretations, ones that they thought were more accurate to the scene. And then for, I think it was 40 or $50, you could have your name attached to the end of the film. And you also had to join one of the film guilds. Um, I just didn't have the money at the time to be able to do that. But I do remember that uh, it was a really neat and nifty idea to be able to go in and say, okay, well, I at least contributed mm -hmm. my thoughts to how things should be interpreted. Uh, whether or not they were chosen, at least I was able to have an active participation in how the outcome of the movies uh, came around. So I thought that was something that, you know, I'll, I'll remember for a long time. Yeah. Jeff, what about you? I mean, I just, just the whole, the three years, or even the year leading up, I guess four years, when I go there, of, of just anticipating the, the anticipation of each subsequent movie was, is something I'll, I'll never probably experience ever again. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, just me and my buddy, you know, uh, love these, love these movies just as much. He's, he's the one I saw all of them with every single time I went, he was there. Um, and, and the, the, the theatrical experiences themselves, like sitting in the theater, you know, after, after seeing the movie several times and knowing there's a lot of these people who have not seen it yet and just seeing their reactions, just, so I would say that my, my, my favorite moments of these movies were, were just, you know, the anticipation leading up, getting all of the companion, you know, books, art books, the toys, I got the swords, <laughs> I got the freaking <laughs> United Cutlery sword hanging on my wall right now. You know, like, uh, I'm, I, I've never been obsessed with anything yeah. <laughs> as, as I have with Lord of the Rings. Like, Game of Thrones maybe comes close, but not quite. Um, mm. uh, and, yeah, um, that, that's all I would add was just that I, um, I, I, cher I cherish those, those years of just being a movie lover and knowing it wasn't a question of, oh, I wonder if the Towers is going to be good. Fellowship was good. I wonder if, of course, it's going to be good. And you knew it was going to be good. Mm -hmm. And that's rare. You know, even the Marvel movies, which are, you know, I would say nine, nine times out of ten a hit, they're still kind of like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what they're going to do this time, you know. Uh, but with Lord of the Rings, there was, there was, no, there was no doubt mm -hmm. it was going to be good. Yeah, there, there are going to be scenes that they, you know, like the Shilob. And um, I, I even have my problems with uh, the... Um, when fighting the, the the Lich King, but I love that scene, but I love it more in the book, and I wish they would have gone a little more towards mm -hmm. the book part, but <laughs> and just everything leading up, and the fact that Aomir seems to have just been completely forgotten by Thayden. <laughs> he doesn't even, like, mention, hey, oh, by the way, this is going to be the new King of Rohan. It's never even talked about. Yeah. But, um, that, but that's 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 the gripey stuff that, that that's nitpicky stuff that I want. Uh, you know, yeah, 
Yeah, anyway. I, will say, <laughs> I, I will say going back to the... Yeah, I, I love the uh, Eowyn scene with the Witch King as well. And I, I love the way the music works and the build-up to that from the moment that uh, he, he approaches Theoden and just everything about that. But yeah, you're right. In the, especially in the theatrical version, like, Aelmer and Eowyn just kind of... Aelmer's just kind of there. You don't really deal with the repercussions of, you know, him being king. And even in the extended edition, you don't necessarily do that. I'm glad you see some of the connection between Faramir and Eowyn in the extended mm -hmm. edition. And I, I do love that you see the uh, moment where Aelmer sees... Theoden and Eowyn, and you get that moment of emotion with with mm -hmm. uh, him. So yeah, I mean the the theatrical version. I I I love that scene, but yeah, at the same time, I'm glad that they were able to flesh that out in the extended edition. I kind of understand why, because by that point in the theatrical, for people who haven't necessarily read the book, you want to keep their focus on Frodo once mm -hmm. the Battle of the Pelennor Fields is gone. It's like, oh, okay, now we've got to go back to Frodo, and he's, you know, he was taken by the orcs and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you on that as far as those, those changes, but I'm, I'm glad some of that is back in the, in the extended edition. Um, with that, uh, I want to thank uh, Jeff and Eric both for... Uh, coming on and uh, sharing sharing their thoughts on these movies and their uh, histories with these movies. And uh, I, I, it, it really is a, uh, it's a tribute to these movies that 20 years after really very few blockbusters are quite like it, like Jeff said. I mean, even, even with Marvel, you, you wonder, well, is it going to be it? Is it, is it going to be good? It's, is it not going to be good or, you know, with, with these movies back to back to back, you really didn't worry about the quality after Fellowship. You basically were just looking forward to seeing them finish the story. So I want to thank you guys for uh, joining me on this uh, discussion. I really appreciate you having me here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This was great. <laughs> Had a great time. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, hopefully at some point we'll uh, be able to... Uh, We'll we'll do this again, maybe talking about something else. Uh if there's uh you know, if there's another topic that you guys want to talk about. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll shoot you yeah. I'd like to thank Jeff and Eric for joining me to discuss the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It was really glad I was really glad to be able to get them to uh talk about it. It's gonna be for this episode of the Sonic Cinema podcast. Uh to wrap up 2021, we're actually going to wrap up my discussions on the 1996 movie year. And uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Google, Apple, and Spotify, as well as patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, as well as, of course, www.sonic-cinema.com. Mm -hmm.